my my pretentious titles have followed me, you know, fairly regularly, but apparently not according to this one reputable news source. Hello. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we regrow limbs while resting in a coma, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, the Dame Dangling Dog Tags, Jessica Frazier. Oh, whose dog tags do I have? I don't know. <laughs> that's that that's what you're question. supposed to tell us. Like, I, I Oh, know. I'm supposed to tell you. No, it's a mystery to me, too. <laughs> Whose dog tags do you clutch onto as an amulet to resist psychic attacks? <laughs> <laughs> if you are new to the show, the purpose of this podcast is to celebrate comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And if you're enjoying the show so far and want to help us grow, it's always a huge help to rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts because that does actually help with discoverability. This week, we are going to be talking about the short-lived comic Charlemagne from Defiant. Defiant was in all caps, so you have to say it that way. Comics in the 1990s. And once again, because it is the fall season, we are joined by comics writer Dan D.G. Chichester in his third appearance on the show to talk about the series because, well, he wrote it. (laughs) Dan, welcome back to the show. Would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners on the off chance that they haven't heard you before? I thank you guys. I definitely will. And they just need to tune into those prior fall episodes to really get the the full picture. Anyway, I am uh, Dan Chichester. I was uh, something of a something back in the 90s in comics, especially where I was initially an editor at Epic Comics, which was Marvel's very formative imprint, doing creator-owned comics, which is where I sort of learned my skill set and thinking about working on a very eclectic and wide range of genres under the tutelage of my boss, Archie Goodwin. So I think I had a pretty good mentorship in getting myself into the game. And then I later became a writer for probably the better part of 13, 15 years within comics, working on titles that I sometimes helped create or launch, like Hellraiser and Nightbreed, (laughs) the Midnight Suns in Marvel, which involved a title that I helped create called Night Stalkers and probably most well-known of the things that I've done, which was a long run on Daredevil, which involved a number of different seminal storylines like the Fall of the Kingpin and Fall from Grace, as well as a favorite of the show, I believe, Terror Incorporated, which is answers the question of <laughs> what if a mercenary boogeyman could steal your body parts and make use of them any way he could? Because it's a question we all have to ask. Yeah. If you haven't listened to the episodes, we highly recommend you go back and listen to the one about Terror Incorporated, as well as the one about Hellraiser in comics that we did last year. They're a lot of fun. Dan has told us some really great stories about what it was like working for Marvel during that era. So before we talk about Charlemagne, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? I'm going to let you duke it out to see who goes first. Oh, please. Guests first, always. Oh, oh, nice. Putting me on the spot. Total mind trip. And I had no clue about this one line sort of, you know, hey, check this thing out. So I tuned into this HBO 
Europe show in Spanish called 30 Coins. Have you guys oh, seen this? Or I've heard seen about the trailers this? for this. That looks, it's like a horror series, right? Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's just a mind trip. It's basically, it is heavily influenced by, you know, somebody who's obviously a big fan of, of HP Lovecraft without getting into that specific mythology, but there are mm-hmm. name checks to mad Arabs and, and such. But basically the premise is that the 30 coins, Judas's 30 coins, you know, that he gained for betraying Jesus were scattered mm. a- across the globe at one point. And by assembling them, any one of them has power by assembling all of them, you can get demonic power in one form or the other. And that this isn't just your typical demonology, but may have some integration with a scheme that Christ himself had uh, you know, in in allegiance with the underworld and with Judas and whatever else, it it is just the most bizarre, fun, freaky trip. And so these coins, you know, start to appear in different points around the world. But the story sort of centers around the small town in Spain, where this troubled priest who has a bit of a history with this coin and with these characters has gone to hide, basically, and then his presence becomes a nexus for all sorts Mm. of possession and evil and weirdness. And it just keeps dialing it up in this fun, pulpy, wild way. So I've caught up with the whole first season and now into the second season where they've doubled down by introducing Paul Giamatti to the mix. Oh, wild. Yeah, which you can do no wrong as far as I'm concerned there. So um, (laughs) I'm having a lot of fun with that. Nice. Very cool. Did you ever read the Harry Dresden books by Jim Butcher? I I am aware of them, and I I liked the couple of episodes of the TV show, right. you know that I that I got into. What I really fell into in a big way was uh, Richard Cadry's Sandman Slim books. Oh, those which, are great um, too. Which are I don't know if they were, they had to have been somewhat influenced by the Dresden stuff. But, yeah, it, um, was, it was that whole era of like kind of like the mid aughts when they started to really do the kind of like paranormal, supernatural right. detective stuff. Um, yep. Yep. But the Dresden Files have a whole mythology similar involving the 30 coins. Uh, oh, do they? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, okay. yeah, it's good. It's like there's like 18 or 19 books now. Um, oh, yeah. I know there's a there's a ton of them. I didn't realize yeah. that was part of the. Un, I just thought it was kind of like mystical occult it, detective stuff. It is. It starts out that way and then it grows into this broader thing. And it's I mm-hmm. really love them. The audiobooks are narrated by James Marsters. Oh, who awesome. Played, who played Spike on Buffy the yeah, Vampire yeah, Slayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. Great voice. I think there's one that was narrated by John Glover, who... Oh, really? You know... John Glover like, or Julian Glover? John Glover. John Glover. The guy wow. who played Lex Luthor's dad on Smallville. But yeah, he's he's a lot of fun, so... Well, oh no, when I get through my list of many things that I have yet to get through, I'll add that to it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it, oh, gosh, it feels that way, doesn't it? it oh, yeah. totally. All right, Jessica, you're up. Well, I have been watching a show. It's an Amazon Prime original, and it's called The Feed. And it's from 2019, so I'm, I'm hopping on a little bit late. Mm-hmm. But it's a show about a futuristic society where they have a brain implant where you can see social media and you can see different feeds. Oh. And it's all these different bubbles in your eyes. And like you can turn it on or off, but... I know Mike is making this face right now where he mm. hates it. I also don't really like it. I'm not a fan, but you know, teenagers start putting it in and 
it's causing potential damage. Like this one kid turns it off and he has a seizure every time he turns it off. Like he can't Mm. be without it. And so they're trying to study the effects of that. There are whole therapists for feed related, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of trauma and things like that. So it's a really fascinating look at society. And it's also kind of looking at the corporate greed behind it, too, because it is one company that Mm -hmm. runs the feed. Mm -hmm. So it's a documentary, in other words, is what you're saying. (laughs) It feels very much like it, honestly. Like, sometimes it's a little too relatable, which I don't know. I like really scaring myself in that way, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. God. I thought that's, that's, you know, it sounds like extrapolating, like, and some of that fun Black Mirror you know, sort of way when it when does Black feel very Mirror Black Mirror, yes, and in a cool. more extended fashion, yeah, very right. much so. Yeah, I haven't actually heard of the series. I'll have to check it out. Oh yeah, Sarah is uh, going out on medical leave next week, and so I'm going to be playing nursemaid to her. So I we're going to have a lot of downtime. So it's going to be Baldur's yeah. Gate, and then while the controllers are recharging, we'll be watching a lot of TV. So nice, perfect. Yeah, check this out for sure. Yeah. Well, Mike, what about you? Other than yeah. Baldur's Gate, which you just, <laughs> you don't get to say that now if that was your thing. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, we've already discussed Baldur's Gate in comics anyway, so it's fine. Uh, yeah. So I, when I am not listening to podcasts, when I am on the elliptical or the bike, I spend a lot of time listening to audiobooks. And I recently started listening to a series called the Dungeon Crawler Carl series <laughs> of books by Matt Dinneman. I... Like, I don't quite know how to describe this. I, it's just delightful. Like it starts out with this dude named Carl. He has just broken up with his girlfriend after he found out via social media that she was cheating on him while she was on vacation. And so he is outside their apartment on the coldest night of the year in Seattle. And he is trying to get her cat out of a tree who the cat is named donut princess donut. I'm sorry. And And she's like a show winning, like, you know, grand prize champion, pure breed, something Siamese, I think. And then (laughs) while they're outside, the world ends. Basically, every building collapses into the earth. And then a bunch of entrances to a subterranean dungeon open up. And so Carl and Donut enter the dungeon. And it turns out that the surviving members of humanity are forced to take part in this like lethal reality competition that's being broadcast to the rest of the galaxy. Donut winds up transformed into a fully sentient creature. So there's two of them at a party and they quickly become celebrities in this broadcast. And it is, (laughs) I mean this in the best way possible. It is one of the most unhinged stories I have ever experienced, but it's also really well written and it balances all the different tones really like to be honest, pretty beautifully. It starts out with this like deranged competition. And then we start getting into this really cool meta story about a dystopian cosmic, like kind of late stage capitalist society. And then halfway through Carl and donut start to seriously undermine that larger society. And there's currently six books in the series. They're narrated by Jeff Hayes, who is the best narrator I have ever encountered. He's incredible. He does like all these special sound effects and stuff. And most of the book feels like it's being narrated by Kronk from The Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> and then the latest book has Patrick Warburton, who played Kronk, showing up as a guest voice. And I am so excited. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's, 
amazing and fun and weird. And the books are awesome to exercise too. So, you know, if you need one more thing on your, (laughs) yeah, if you need one more thing on your to consume list, add this. It's very cool. Wild. Very neat. Okay. So are we all ready to talk about Charlemagne? We are. I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn more about Charlemagne than I probably knew when I was working on it. (laughs) (laughs) I think you just answered one of my questions for later on, but good to know. (laughs) All right. So we can't talk about Charlemagne without diving into the history of Defiant Comics, Mm -hmm. which is another chapter in the dense tome of Jim Shooter's career. So we have discussed Jim at various points in the show, but this particularly ties back into episode 20 when we talked about Deathmate with comic book couples counseling. Here's the Reader's Digest version. Jim Shooter was fired from Marvel in 1987 after he had basically saved the company from financial ruin. Uh, and then after a failed attempt to buy Marvel with the help of some investors, he went on to found Valiant Comics in 1989 with some serious financial backing from Triumph Capital. Valiant's first couple of years weren't great. They did some WWF, which is the original version of WWE wrestling comics, as well as a number of Nintendo licensed comics. And they weren't really hits. But then in 1991, they hit a home run with a shared superhero universe starring a mix of classic gold key comics characters and original heroes. But in 1992, Shooter was ousted. Shooter's given interviews and written about this on his site, which are, you know, they're one sided stories. Dan, I don't know if you would have more insight into this, but based on the various claims and an article titled Valiant Entertainment's second death mirrors its first from CBR, it sounds like Triumph Capital really didn't have a long-term interest in being a comics publisher and they wanted to cash out once Valiant was hitting it big and Shooter didn't want to sell the company. And so as a result, he was forced out. Yeah, I I mean, that's the story of any investor group, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that's what investors are there for. They're They're there to cash out. They're not there to make, you know, yeah make your vision happen so that would be my only you know real observation there jim has you know one version of of things or a very jim centric version of things i'm sure there is there is truth there and i'm sure there's truth on other sides of it i mean i have a better view of jim i think than other people people do so i'm neither gonna confirm or deny or disparage or (laughs) you know play up so there's there's probably a reason Defiance uh, emblem, you know, was the standalone citadel, you know, uh, standing alone. <laughs> <You know? laughs> probably. Yeah. So, well, as a result, he was forced out of the company and Triumph sold Valiant to the video game publisher Acclaim. The only official messaging that I could actually find on this whole scenario was in an interview titled The State of Valiant Address in issue 17 of Wizard Magazine, where Bob Mazarski says, Jim had a different idea to the direction of the company. And so he was asked to leave and that's like, it. so shooter left Valiant in 1992 and then started a new imprint called defiant comics in 1993. And according to the overstreet comic book price guide of lost universes, shooter secured an investment from the river group to spin the publisher up. And he hired some valiant veterans like Winston Falks, Debbie fix JJ Jackson and David Lapham, as well as some others. They signed on a number of big artists and writers, and they announced that the first title would be called Plasm, the first issue of which was going to be released in two different ways. One would be having it inserted into a copy of Previews Magazine, which I actually have because it is the same issue that also came with an inserted copy of Deathmate Orange. Hmm. (laughs) And again, going back to Deathmate, 
And uh, and they also released it as a series of trading cards that you had to buy the packs for and then assemble into binder sleeves so that you could read it like a comic book. Oh, <laughs> like, no. Jessica's face, man. <laughs> oh, no. That sounds like so much work. <laughs> so much work. I, like, I exactly. What if you... At one I, like, at one panel is a is a rarity. What do you what happens there? I mean, that's the whole thing. Is it's like I was sitting there and I was like, oh, so they're like really kind of cashing in on that FOMO. And the thing is, is like at this point in time, like trading cards were so big. Like I mm-hmm. think Marvel was on its third or fourth version of the Marvel Universe cards, which I mean, like those launched originally when you were at Marvel, right, Dan? Yes, or you know, yeah. I mean, I remember the initial versions of those so yeah they, they, yeah they did well with those and they're because at one point the tops i can't remember who you know there's there was somebody who owned marvel or part of marvel that was in the trading card business so everything was yeah that was when ron perlman had bought mm-hmm. them i think and then they were doing it with i can't remember who i know skybox was doing a bunch of them right right yep tops had just right around this year, Tops also had started their own comic book imprint and they were doing like mm-hmm. license adaptations. We just talked with Andy Mangles about Jason Goes to Hell, mm-hmm. which was one of the, the Tops comics. But yeah, I know that DC also was getting into this. The DC Cosmic cards weren't as popular, but they were moving well enough that they did a couple incarnations of those. And then this was also around the time that collectible card games like Magic the Gathering were launching. And they really, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, that was. I mean, I, I don't even know how to describe how massive that was when they launched. Like my friends mm-hmm. were immediately talking about it and it just never went away. And now it's this behemoth of a brand. But yeah, so the first wave of comics from Defiant were Plasm, Dark Domain and The Good Guys. And then we got Charlemagne as part of the publisher's second wave, which rolled out in mm-hmm. like late 93, early 1994, based on the cover dates mm-hmm. and Charlemagne itself launched with issue zero, which was inserted into Hero Illustrated number nine and wasn't sold separately. The whole series was apparently plotted by Jim Shooter based on the credits. But Mm -hmm. Dan, you were handling the scripting duties, at least, you know, from what I saw when I was reading through all this stuff. So how did you wind up working on this book? Well, fortuitously and a bit flatteringly, Jim contacted me. So Jim reached out and and asked if I'd be interested in kind of coming in and talking about what would be this project. Mm-hmm. So as I said, I had a I had a good, if not a good relationship, certainly a not a negative relationship with Jim. Mm-hmm. You know, my time with him had been working as the assistant to his assistant. You know, when I first started in comics, I glommed on and gleamed a lot of you know, wisdom or admiration from that seat and watching how he sort of did business. I wasn't overly exposed to the negative parts of him, you know, in the own way. When I was in Epic, you know, he had a certain relationship with Archie, which I think also buffered us from, say, the the worst of him or or whatever. At least it was mm-hmm. different than what people who were more directly working with him in his in his Marvel role. At one point, I was negotiating with him to take over a, a kind of a movie-related role while he was still editor-in-chief, and I was trying to parlay my film degree into something, and he was grilling me on that, and at one point was very, you know, became very positive on me kind of taking on that role, which I thought was going to like lead in a different direction. So mm. when he was fired, you know, that, that all went away, so I was a little disappointed. <laughs> yeah, understandable. But I, right. 
but I didn't have a, a negative, you know, outlook on him. And I just saw him a couple of months ago at a, at a show and, you know, I went up and, you know, it was, you know, just, hey, good to see you. Hope you're doing well and that and that type of thing. So he contacted me and had me come in and I knew it was his new imprint and knew how well Valiant had done and said, okay, well, maybe this could be a good thing, you know, for me as well. He sort of made some comparisons to Charlemagne's character, to like Matt Murdock and, and Daredevil mm-hmm. a little bit, whether he was trying to, you know, assign a, a point of reference for me or not. It was just a, you know, just a positive conversation. So yeah, of course, I'd love to work with you. I'd love to work on your property. And it was as simple as that. And I didn't have any issue that he was taking a bigger role in his property. I would expect that, Frank, you know, yeah. given who he was and especially what he was doing and his mindset and the way that he would imprint himself on on titles. So I was cool with taking it forward in terms of language and scripting and and occasionally, you know, throwing in an observation maybe about the plot direction. But once he invited me in and I was like, yeah, absolutely. It was pretty much off to the races. Nice. Were you still at Marvel at this time too? I was freelance at this point. I mean, okay. I was I was full-time freelance, you know, so while the majority of my work would probably continue to be through Marvel in one form or another, you know, Charlemagne was, as a freelancer, I mean, now freelancers are much smarter and they'll work anywhere. Mm-hmm. I think in those days, there was, there was a sort of sense, well, if you're a freelancer for Marvel, you're kind of a freelancer for Marvel. You're right. a freelancer for DC or Valiant. There was almost like that sense that you're playing in one office or another. Mm-hmm. But I was always eager to break that because I, I knew that that would just mean more opportunity for you. Yeah. Well, yeah. And at this point in time, Valiant was still huge. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they had had Unity... This was right around the era that Death Made It Hit, which like it hadn't objectively been a good crossover in terms of storytelling, but I mean, it sold gangbusters mm-hmm. and Valiant was still, I think, kind of riding the high and then, you know, post everything, it all fell apart. But yeah, I could, I could see how Jim Shooter's next project probably would have seemed really attractive too at that point. In time. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. I mean, he made a success out of that, that part. So yeah. You know, and and had done very successful things at Marvel, so it wasn't like a one-trick pony. You know, lightning yeah. can strike multiple times where this guy is, because uh, he's yeah. very tall and he can attract lightning. You know, so that's. that's- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like you know, at some point we should probably cover Shooter's story because it is really fascinating. Like he sold his first story to DC. I think when he was like what 13, 14, 13, like 14, that. Yeah, yeah. You should you should try to invite him on? You know, he'd yeah. probably be a. An interesting story at the very, very least. I know he does a lot of interviews these days, so it'd be pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. I've got, I've got a bunch of Valiant books that were, I bought from like someone who was just selling their collection and there was a bunch of like signed comics by Jim Shooter in there. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I've got some Jim Shooter autographs now, but mm-hmm. it's interesting. Like, you know, I know that he's very polarizing to a lot of people, but most of the stuff that I have by him, I really like. So no, he's a good, he's a good storyteller. You can't refute his ability to tell a story and you know, his skill as a, as a writer, I think is, is well proven, yeah. you know, yeah. it's Jim's story and everybody's yeah. story is your story. Jessica is your story. You know, right. these are this, my story is my story of something, but very often I think the experience of people is it's so much Jim's story that it can cloud out. Well, wait a minute. I, I was in the room too. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I've only seen that a little bit and I don't know him well enough to sort of kind of really call him on that years later, but it's almost like, you don't need to do this. 
Yeah. Like, you know, you have so much going for you. It doesn't have to be everything, but maybe in his mindset, that is either what it needs to be or that that is the honest way he he remembers it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's talk about issue zero of Charlemagne, which is titled Snake Dance. This came out in February of 94. This is the one that was actually written by Jim. It was penciled by Adam Polina, who was the penciler for almost every issue of the series. It was inked by Michael Witherby, painted by Benjamin Jung, lettered by George Roberts, and edited by Deborah Purcell. The book is short. It's only eight interior pages. And this story basically starts in media res with Charlemagne walking down the street in Bangkok, accompanied by a street urchin who's asking him why he walks funny. Charlemagne basically looks like Captain America on Casual Friday. And he says that he's... <laughs> I'm sorry. Like he that. totally does. Like, he does. No, you're like, not. You're not wrong. That's I was a gonna very say, apt description. I will die on this hill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no need to die. I think we all are, are with you on this one. <laughs> but yeah, he basically says that he is learning how to walk again, but we never find out what that means in this issue. We learn about it in the next one. The kid asks Charlemagne if he likes to fight. And Charlemagne says he doesn't, but then the kid goes, well, I know you fight well because I saw you fighting pirates, which is from issue one again. And then the urchin says that Charlemagne has to fight in an underground cage fight, I guess, because his sister is being held hostage until he brings the American to a specific location in exchange for money, a ticket home, travel papers. And then the two go to a warehouse where Charlemagne is confronted by Mr. New, who it's spelled N-G-U at the end of the issue they spell it n-e-w i have to call that out (laughs) yes yeah i noticed that too you know i hate that (laughs) yeah and then new challenges our hero and charlemagne really doesn't want to fight until the kid's sister is threatened with extreme bodily harm new dips his hands into a brazier and heats them up and then turns to burn the woman's face and then charlemagne has his moment of getting empowered by rage we then get a battle between the two of them Charlemagne shows he's got super strength and durability. New showcases extreme martial arts and his, I don't know, burning ability, whatever. Anyway, Charlie emerges triumphant, takes his prize, and then announces he's heading home. End scene. (laughs) You've got hot hands, ladies. Are you listening? And and it's implied that we're going to see New again. He basically does the whole mysterious, like, bowing towards Charlie and then disappearing when Charlie looks away. We never see him again in this entire series. So it was I think that was slated for issue six. No. Oh, I'm okay. Kidding. But I'm you know. <laughs> Good. All right. So then we get to issue one, which is written by our esteemed guest Dan, penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Michael yep. Witherby, painted by Eau Claire, who I don't know who that is. Do you remember Dan? No, I don't. Okay. Uh, um, but uh, it was a cool looking book. I mean, you know, yeah. Adam's oh. skill was a little raw and wonky, but it had a tremendous amount of energy. And I, I really liked it actually. Like as yeah. I was going, like especially when he got to do full page or two page spreads, it felt mm-hmm. like it. You know, it feels a little rough. I think he went on to do X Force later on, or some some X books. Yeah, Marvel. And yeah, them. and now he's doing a lot of his own projects and yeah. a lot of performance art stuff too. It's, Pretty, oh, that's cool. pretty interesting character. Up. Yeah. But yeah, his style is really dynamic. Like it, mm-hmm. and the colors are actually really good too. Yeah. I, yeah, really. And then it was lettered by Mindy Eisman and it was edited by Deborah Purcell. And the story mm-hmm. begins 
I should note, this is a chonker of a first issue. Sorry. This is like a 43 yeah. page first issue. And I was not expecting that when I started reading it. And then as I'm going, through, I wasn't like, either. And I, was I like, kept going, like... wait, what? <laughs> how long is this comic? And we've read some comics that aren't like, they're not actually long. They just feel really long. They feel and I just endless, was like, yeah. is it one of those or is this a really long comic? And I went yeah. back and looked, and I was like, oh, it's a really long comic. <laughs> yeah i had to look it up and i was like you're, oh, okay. you're either you're either getting your money's worth or you're like i didn't put enough time away for this <laughs> <laughs> yeah but anyway so the story begins in october of 1973 and it introduces us to 12 year old charles smith who lives in louisville kentucky charlie's older brother peter is a soldier who's been reported mia in vietnam and it's something the kid thinks about a lot he notes that he reads his brother's letters home and they are so detailed that he sometimes feels like he's over there. The Pentagon calls and says that they haven't found Peter. And it doesn't sound like he's being held prisoner over there. So they don't think they're going to find him alive. That night, Charlie basically just <laughs> runs away. He hitchhikes to the airport and sneaks on board various airplanes, eventually lands in Manila, and then stows away on a boat and lands in Saigon. And there is this like really great full page spread showing him just looking at Saigon and showing how different this is from Louisville as he wanders the streets. It's, it's such a great like image. I just, I want to yeah. call it out. And Charlie stumbles across another American named Jerry Westerberg, who it's revealed as a reporter living in Vietnam, pursuing a Pulitzer. When Jerry hears Charlie's story, he then takes the boy to his friend, Dr. Tran Nguyen, who it turns out has cultivated a network of informants and favors on both sides of the war. Nguyen tells Westerberg that he's going to get in touch with the American consulate and get the kids shipped home. But Charlie overhears this and basically bolts. And then he continues his quest and moves across Vietnam as he searches for his brother. And he spends months doing this, going from village to village. And it seems like he becomes kind of like a, almost like a mythic figure. Like people know who he is. Like after a while, like he starts showing up and they know who he is. Right. And then Charlie eventually learns his brother's location at the same time that Nguyen's network does. And a couple of Nguyen's agents bring Charlie back to the power broker. And he, A, apologizes to the boy for being short-sighted and also names him Charlemagne, as in Charles the Great, because the kid's adventures have become the stuff of local legend. Nguyen says that he's going to make sure the kid gets to his brother the following morning after a party that night with a bunch of important people, where Charles meets a girl named Li Juan, who lost her brothers when they joined the Viet Cong. And then the next day, Nguyen calls in a favor to have an American army chopper deliver Charles to the village where his brother is living, it seems. He doesn't appear to be a prisoner, but it's not really explained. And then right after the two brothers reunite, a bunch of American helicopters attack the village because they think it's an enemy stronghold. Peter is killed in an explosion. Charles is gunned down because the Americans think that he is a fleeing member of the Viet Cong. And then he loses his legs in another explosion. And... The kid manages to survive, but is comatose. And when the Americans evacuate Vietnam later on, Doc Nguyen bribes some soldiers to bring in the boy who he feels responsible for. And basically, he takes over his care. The comatose Charles dreams and then almost goes into the light, but then decides to stay and be the person who balances the score when things go wrong. And then we cut to 20 years later in 1993, where Doc Nguyen is talking to a new nurse who says that she's been taking care of Charlemagne and was exercising his arms and legs which then causes a surprise doctor rush into the boy's bed and see the now adult Charlemagne is a 
yoked and B has indeed grown his legs. And then Charlemagne wakes up and we flash forward again to almost a year later where Charles is fully recovered and Doc is sending him on a boat full of refugees to Thailand only for the boat to later be attacked by pirates, which was mentioned in the issue zero. Charlemagne single-handedly takes out the pirates and saves the refugees, showcases superhuman strength, and then eventually makes it home to Louisville where he reunites with his parents after catching up with them for maybe a page (laughs) and learning that Westerberg wrote a book about Vietnam and Charlemagne had an entire chapter devoted to his story. The now man tells his parents that he has some kind of special purpose, but he doesn't know exactly what it is. And he sets out to walk across America and figure out what it is. And the issue, like I said, is a chonker of a book. It's 43 pages, but it feels like a graphic novel because there's so much going on in here. And it's very dense, but it, it moves along. Also, I want to see what those nurses look like that were like exercising his arms because honestly, like the arms themselves are a workout. Like yeah. they're like, oh, <laughs> we were helping to exercise his legs. It's like you and who else? Because yeah. those things are <laughs> the size of a horse. <laughs> yeah. Just stuck I think cantaloupes under his skin. It's Adam did like his beefy <laughs> muscles. Sure. Uh, yeah when you describe it that way it's yeah it's even more complex than i remember it (laughs) (laughs) i had to read it twice because i wanted to make sure i got everything and i mean it's like every page there is something important to the plot happening it's pretty wild yeah so issue two the dance of eternity it keeps most of the same creative crew but sue mcteague and david hillman joined in on coloring duties while joe james served as editor Charlemagne is on a bus to California when some hooligans in a car start harassing other drivers on the road. Charlemagne asks the driver about what he's going to do about it. The driver goes, well, they're not my problem, and I have a schedule to keep right as the assholes force a trailer driven by an elderly couple off the road and into a ravine where the car catches fire. Charlemagne manages to rescue the elderly couple and get them into the bus and then finishes his journey to Santa Monica where Pete's old girlfriend, Susie Cantrell, works in a new age shop and she like totally is just, this is a job for her. She's like, mm, like whatever. Like I think the opening <laughs> thing is we get her trying to sell a crystal and talking about how the way it smells like mint. And the woman's like, Oh, I thought it smelled like garlic. And she's like, Oh, I meant minty garlic. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's very good. Charlemagne introduces himself to her and she brings him home for dinner to meet her family. Susie's husband, Jack, is a jerk throughout dinner, clearly grumpy about the fact that his wife invited (laughs) someone who looks like a perfect bodybuilder home. And then they get into an argument when Charlemagne tells them about his adventures so far. And Jack thinks that this man is a raving lunatic. And just as Charlemagne is being asked to leave the house, another defiant character named War Dancer appears. War Dancer looks like a Mesoamerican superhero mixed with Marvel's Phoenix. He kind of appears in a burst of flame. And he says he has come for our protagonist who is going to be humanity's champion in an impending dark time. But then War Dancer also tells Charlemagne that the two of them are destined for combat. And he is supposed to destroy the hero right before he then vanishes in a cloud of flames and basically says, prepare yourself. And Charlemagne's response is basically like, fuck that. We're fighting right now. And then the rest. <laughs> I wait. No. Yeah, it was great. And then the rest of the issue is a pretty one sided slugfest between the two super beings. Charlemagne's strength and durability and tenacity aren't really a match for War Dancer's cosmic level power. But when the fight's over, War Dancer says that he's not going to kill the hero today because he has earned honor in their fight. 
And then Charlemagne basically vows to stop War Dancer no matter what. And like, I should note that I did not read the War Dancer comic for this. I felt like there were all these cameos. Yeah. So that's the thing is, this is the start of every issue. There are all these other defiant characters who show up. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is like, I I had to look it up. I was like, I don't know who this is. So War Dancer had his own comic. I don't know much else other than he had his own comic. (laughs) <laughs> and, I figured that was the case for some of the other characters that came up, but I didn't realize this one in particular. I thought this was like a comic specific, like antagonist kind of a situation, but that's interesting. Yeah. We, um, we may have yeah. just unearthed the roadmap for, you know, modern Marvel TV shows, you know, just this confusing mishmash of interconnected characters, you know, who knows? But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where it feels like you need to do homework to understand what's going on. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, issue three, again, written by Dan. It was penciled by Adam Polina, inked by Chad Hunt and Keith Wilson, painted by Eau Claire and David Hillman, lettered by Agnes Pinhana and Rod Olerenshaw, and edited by Joseph A. James. Titled Fear Itself, this issue crossed over with the series Dark Dominion, which was kind of a horror comic from what I understand. Charles is Mm -hmm. now in New York. He has fallen off the Brooklyn Bridge, I think. I'm not great at New York geography. Sorry, everyone. And he landed on a trash barge where the crew knows something is up because nobody should survive a fall like that. And it turns out the crew's minds are being manipulated by demons. And that's when a man named Michael Alexander appears out of nowhere and banishes the demons, which in turn makes the crew way less cranky. Michael says, we should talk. Meet me on the shore. And then he like vanishes. And Charles is like, oh, that's cool. And he tells the crew, don't worry about it because it's not that far and he can make it with a single jump. And so he does. And one of the crewmen is like, is it just me or is this sitting getting stranger? Which I kind of loved. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, we cut to a place called the substratum, which is it's kind of like hell, but also kind of the upside down of stranger things because it's framed as the dark flip side to what's narrowly thought of as reality. And we meet a demon called Mule, who's apparently ruling the place in the absence of another being called Chasm. Mule meets an older demon from the Middle Ages named Bottom, who offers to send Mule back to the world of the living in exchange for acting as his channel to physically interact with this, you know, world that he misses being in. Oh my gosh, Dan's like, like Dan's having a flashback right now. He is having a flashback. <laughs> it's like, I just, you know, I, I kind of gave up on Loki, you know, like halfway through the season but you know there's all these articles that were you know saying we're gonna talk about know, oh that the the end the you know the end uh you know worked out so well and and i started to read like an article like spoiler alert article to try to mm-hmm. like suss out what happened i gave up halfway through the article because it was like this so it's like i don't know what's going on and <laughs> i can't i can't i can't follow along anymore. you can't even follow something you've written and i love that. exactly i love exactly. comics are amazing i love it so much <laughs> it's so good <sighs> all right so back in new york it turns out michael is a writer and his powers are more psychic in nature He uses his abilities to learn Charles' backstory across town. Mule manifests into the real world. He appears out of the shadows in a sex worker's apartment. And then just as he reaches for the woman, Bottom basically rips himself out of Mule's body, like kind of channeling his inner chestburster, and then leaves Mule torn up on the floor as he heads out into the city. Mule's imp 
or assistant. I don't know. Basically looks at his boss and goes, you need real help. And he flies across town to Michael's apartment, begging for the hero's help. Michael isn't thrilled, but he also notes he shouldn't pick and choose who he brings the light to. So he tells Charles to stay put while he goes and deals with this. Then we see Bottom on the subway, boosting and feeding on the negative emotions of the people around him. Bottom then shows up outside Michael's apartment and starts loudly threatening him in broad daylight. Charles looks out the window and sees all this. He comes downstairs and he basically tells the demon that he's a friend of Michael's and he doesn't like it when people threaten his friends. Bottom and Charlemagne get into a giant physical battle while Michael gets to Mule and brings him back to the substratum where the demon is able to heal from his injuries. And when that happens, Bottom is dragged back to the substratum as well because his channel is no longer here in the world. But this is not before his psychic powers prove ineffective against Charles and the demon is on the ropes already. Michael returns home to find his apartment empty and assumes Charles is out seeing the sights and says, well, at least one of them had a relaxing day. And meanwhile, we see Mule ominously return to his throne in the substratum. End scene. <laughs> the look <laughs> on Dan's face is so good. <laughs> like, it's end scene. <laughs> I just like, it's end scene. It's like, you know, it's like a Ricky Gervais, like sort of, you know, skit with like Ian McKellen at this point. It's kind oh. of just like, you know, it's, it's great. Just like, you know. I like, but you just have this like, you have this, like I'm, I'm just mildly yeah, I'm, bewildered I'm so look on your dazed. face. It's so funny. I'm, I'm <laughs> parsing, parsing the past and we're going to get to the, the transition point once you go through all this kind of review. Got, so the good news is we've got two more issues to go. The, I, I know if it's bad news, but the twist is that this next issue is another like 48 page one. So yeah, it was another chonky, <laughs> chonky boy. Yeah. Oh, but I, this is one of those times where I'd very truly wish that this was a visual medium because just your, <laughs> the journey that I was going on watching your facial expressions was just like, <laughs> it was delightful. It was delicious. <laughs> it was good. I'm glad I could be here for it. <laughs> All right. Issue four, written by Dan, penciled by Anthony Castrillo, inked by Chad Hunt and Keith Wilson, lettered by M. Eisman, colored by David Hillman and Erica Helene, and edited by Joseph A. James. And this issue pretty much picks up right where the last one ended with Charlemagne standing in a fountain after his battle with Bottom. People assume he's homeless because his clothing is so torn up and he meets a young woman named Nudge, a character from Warriors of Plasm who has some psychic powers. She tries to mentally force Charles to come with her, but he resists and runs away. Nudge goes to her sister's house, who then serves as an audience surrogate while the woman provides an exposition dump about her backstory where it sounds like she's on the side of War Dancer. I don't know. Charles is wandering and meets Grimax, who is another divine hero. Right before Charles is attacked by a group of guys playing football in the park, Charles punches one of them into a tree, and it looks like Nudge is manipulating people's emotions to go after the hero. We then cut back to Vietnam, where we see Lee Juan, the girl from the party in issue one, where she is making dinner for her family, her husband, and her kids. And then she suddenly tells her husband that she needs to leave, and she goes to Doc Nguyen's house where she explains that she's been hearing Charles' voice and needs to go to America. And Doc is basically like, well, if it's about Charles, anything is possible. And then starts making arrangements for her to get over there. (laughs) (laughs) And then Charles goes for a sandwich at a deli. And then a crowd of unhoused people basically accost him as soon as he gets outside. 
He can hear psychic whispers in the air and gives some of the group his food, including one man in particular gets a sandwich. Uh, right as one of them says that Charles is their hero and they need him to save them. Charles wanders over to Times Square where he sees footage of a destroyed Madison Square Garden up on the Jumbotron. He blows off a sinister street preacher who calls himself the Puritan and then wanders over to the World Trade Center right as the defiant superheroes, the good guys, show up. And then they're all psychically manipulated into attacking Charles. And when he escapes, they're all confused as to why they did that. Charles goes on to sleep on a park bench that night and he doesn't know where Michael lives, which is why he's just kind of wandering aimlessly. And then the man that he gave a sandwich to finds him and brings him to an underground homeless encampment that looks a lot like the underground society we saw in the 1980s Beauty and the Beast series. We're yes, talking like this. Yes, this was exactly <laughs> what I was thinking when I saw it. When it opened up, I was like, oh, I've seen this before. Yeah. <laughs> Guest starring Ron Perlman. Yeah, man. <laughs> Which also had a comic book right around this era. <laughs> which we've talked about, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, Charles goes to sleep, wakes up, and finds his boots and money are all gone. As he wanders through the area, he finds some toughs attacking the man who had helped him, claiming that they're going to throw him in the steam pit, which is just this giant like pit that's just belching forth gouts of steam. <laughs> Charles, yes, as you do, I mean, like, in the middle know, of your the, community. Yeah, the, the best named thing: the steam pit, a yeah, pit no. belching forth. <laughs> Clouds of steam, you know, <laughs> total truth. Charles steps in and then they still manage to kind of throw him into the steam pit along with the other man. And it's actually pretty gruesome. Like Charles isn't affected by the steam, but we get to see the other man getting cooked alive. Charles then Hulk jumps his way out of the underground. Like he busts through the street. And then in this one panel, he has his shoes back, which I kind of love. Yeah. He lands a trans woman named Lola offers to help him out, but he turns her down. And then Charles decides to just go home tomorrow as he's sleeping on a rooftop in the rain. And he has, it's this kind of like vulnerable moment where it's like showing that he is still emotionally a kid Mm -hmm. and the city has just kind of beaten him down. And then Charles then goes to grand central station. He is desperate and disheveled. He gets into a fight with security just as Lee Juan shows up and says that she has been given money by doc to bring Charles back to Vietnam so they can start a life together, which Seems kind of out of the blue, to say the least, but okay. And then right. she brings him to the Plaza Hotel where they canoodle for a while. And <laughs> the canoodling begins. It, it's very, it's like, okay, like we, we know for real they fuck it, but yeah, <laughs> this is a comic yeah, that is yeah. ostensibly for, for tweens. And so like they can't mm-hmm. show it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the clouds of steam, the steam pits start to drift across the <laughs> God. I mean, there is the bit where she steps out of the shower and she's like, you know, in like a slip and then she's got her hair wrapped up and, you know, you're like, oh, okay, I know what's going on here. Yeah, but, right. <laughs> oh man. So that's when we learned that Nudge has been controlling everything af- from afar, including Li Juan, who inadvertently mentions her husband and kids, which then causes an argument with Charles while Nudge starts forcing the woman to act more and more desperate, culminating with her causing the woman to threaten suicide unless Charles goes back with her to Vietnam. But then there's a battle with one of the characters from the comic dogs of war right outside, which Charles jumps out the window to mitigate the collateral damage from Charles somehow then tracks nudge down to her sister's house and confronts her. 
She tells him that he needs to give up his hunt for war dancer and then forces her sister to attack Charles while she escapes. Charles resumes his quest to stop war dancer after sharing a worthless goodbye with Li Juan. And then Nudge calls her sister and forces her to forget everything that happened. Okay, but I like the explanation that he has for being able to find Nudge. And it was that she was yelling in everybody's brains so loud that he just followed the sound of that. Which I do what? kind of like. But <laughs> so this is something... It was such a hand-wavy comics explanation that I I did like it, but it was just such like a comics like I yeah. followed the sound of your thoughts and I was like, of course you did. Well, yes. <laughs> That's a common stalker excuse. You know, also. It, works, it works very well for like, you know, you know, Good. well, that kind of thing. Not that I've ever used that line myself. So <laughs> I hope not, man. Well, we're going to talk about this because I actually kind of like how this goes. But issue five, which is titled One Man Can, again, written by Dan, penciled by Adam Polina, layouts by Tim Eldred, inked by Chad Hunt, lettered by M. Eisman, colored by David Hillman and edited by Joseph A. James. The story opens on Charles, still in New York, basically trying to elbow drop War Dancer from like the top of a skyscraper after he's tracked the guy down. <laughs> and then he's stopped midair by another Mesoamerican looking dude named Throck Hall, who also has beef with the dancer and offers to train Charlemagne. They teleport away and Charles wakes up chained to a tree in it's like an otherworldly looking desert. We learn and later on it's part of the substratum. Throck Hall and his servant Ego spelled IGO are standing over him. They reveal that they are training him, but it's not traditional. Instead, the first part is going to have Charles meditating on his strength and learning to understand it better and then use that understanding to break free. It takes Charles less than like a minute to tap into his power. And he not only breaks free, but then he hurls the tree across the landscape. Thrakal and Ego then take Charles to a Colosseum where he ends up fighting a demonic being called Rabid. It's a pretty rough battle, but Charles manages to defeat the beast only to then be confronted by a pack of bigger demons who apparently are Rabbit's big brothers. And then we cut to a couple of hours later where Charles has defeated all of them and tells Thrakal that he needs to learn more if he's going to defeat the dancer. Thrakal traps Charles in a dream crafted from his fondest memory, but Charles breaks out of it quickly. And then he just basically says he's had enough with the man's manipulations and reveals that he can travel through the quantum field as well because he, quote, picks up tricks after he sees them a few times, which I kind of loved. I thought that was I great. I did, too. <laughs> I did, too. Because I also pick up tricks when I see him a few times. <laughs> <laughs> I pick up tricks at the supermarket in the cereal aisle. But, you know, that's <laughs> sorry, dad jokes. But, you know, it's. Yeah. Um... Oh, man. And then the rest of the issue is Charles confronting and challenging Dancer to a showdown. There's cameos from a couple of other Defiant characters who I couldn't identify. And then Charlemagne and Dancer travel to the Angkor Wat temple in Cambodia where they square off for a showdown to be continued. And then that's where the story stops. The series ends. <laughs> and that you know not. that just it's just such a gut punch to me. You know that. I know. I mean, like, <laughs> this is... This is the problem with our show is half the time we find these series where we're like, they're like weirdly charming and we kind of dig them. And then they just stop. And we're like, God damn it. Like, and but it's, it's a beautiful thing you do because you resurrect or unearth these strange deep cuts, you know, which are, which are very cool. I mean, I can count on probably one hand and it's not like I've been to a lot of conventions in the last whole bunch of years, but you know, where people bring up Charlemagne at all, right. Yeah. It doesn't come up or if somebody shows up with a copy of it, 
mm-hmm. that's that's beyond beyond so oh don't worry I, issues you know <laughs> several hundred pages you know or at least close to 200 pages worth of comic books or comic book storytelling you know by a a significant publisher of the era mm-hmm. so these this thing vanishes and so it's kind of cool that you guys bring it back out to represent it in all of its warty convoluted glory you know that's that's sort of the charm of of comics well first of all don't worry when i eventually get all of my comics for you to sign charlemagne is going to be in there he'll be at the top of the stack yes totally (laughs) right right under the glow in the dark daredevil cover ah yes yes the gritty the gritty glow in the dark goodness i love it uh but yeah i tell people half the time like so what's your show about and i'm like it's basically comic book archaeology I'm like, and it's like the weird stuff. Right, right. So yeah, so as I said, this is where the series stops. It ends with issue five, and it was a casualty of Defiant going under after having to fend off a lawsuit from Marvel Comics. Basically, Marvel, Um, yes. Okay, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Marvel alleged that Plasm was appropriating the name of a Marvel UK comic called Plasmer, which, okay, like I'm a Marvel UK aficionado. I had never heard of that comic until I read that article in the Overstreet Price Guide to Lost Universes. So Defiant changed the series name to Warriors of Plasm, but Marvel decided to go ahead with the lawsuit. The judge in the trial was future Bush-era Attorney General Michael B. Mukasey, who famously told the American Bar Association not every wrong or even every violation of the law is a crime, but he ultimately ruled in Defiant's favor. And... Unfortunately, the cost of the lawsuit basically bankrupted the company and things might have worked out differently if the lawsuit hadn't happened. There was apparently a multi-million dollar deal with Mattel that the lawsuit delayed long enough for it to be canceled. And then Defiant itself was going to be doing a crossover similar to what Shooter had done with Valiant Mm -hmm. and its Unity storyline. Right. And then the last of Defiant's books made it onto the shelves sometime around the early summer of 1994 based on the cover dates. And that's kind of it. Like, that's all we got. (laughs) But now people are going to hear this episode. They're going to resurrect the character. It's back again. You know, (laughs) I mean, that'd be pretty great. Yeah. Speaking of back again, like, Dan, do you know where the story was headed? Like, how would things have worked out if Defiant hadn't gone under? Uh, The look on my face probably gives you that answer, you know, throughout this this, this review. I mean, I can tell you, and I have, I think, when we say the terror incorporated you know review like i i could tell you the color of the light you know in margaret clark's apartment when we came up with shrek you know and and you know and relating you know the the hour of the afternoon and sort of all the details around that sort of thing you know they're, they're like indelibly sort of etched in my mind there are probably less specifics here because this was jim's property right jim mm-hmm. had huge ideas and and again that's fine rightly so i was not expecting anything different but as you were you know relating us you know through the you know the whole story here (laughs) you know i'm sure my task here was to try to herd the cats as much as anything let me herd the cats with words because it's not my nature even when i've been at my worst to sort of pack things as packed as this is. Mm-hmm. So this feels like a lot of Jim setup. I'm not putting the blame on Jim, but I think if this is threading toward big, massive, 
crossovers and that would have been where this would have gone right in right. in my memory and that's the game plan because universes were us universes were the thing that's what you were trying to do you were trying to create books that had that critical mass of pinging off each other and yeah, then the getting into these bigger events and the, yeah the shared mythology the shared universe so you know it wouldn't have necessarily been in my nature or interest to start picking up characters or references to other things that I wasn't even that familiar with so much as, hey, we want you to use this or throw in some dark dominion here mm-hmm. or put this there. Contrasting this with, say, the runs of some stuff when I did Milestone, where they had such a deeply detailed Bible system, you know, for their whole world, a guidebook to all of Dakota, you know, city, right? that you could look through that. Hey, cool. I want to use that tunnel. Hey, cool. I want to use this. And that was my recollection of working in there was more picking up things. Whereas mm-hmm. as you're sort of relating this, while I don't have the immediacy of saying for sure, I'm feeling a lot more of this was kind of given to me. Get from point A to B mm-hmm. and you get to decide certain things along the way, maybe. And you certainly get to influence things in terms of dialogue. And these titles are Chichester, you know, uh, 101 from, you know, the 90s or now. I mean, the, these all resonate with with me. So I'm sure I was titling these things. But my my, you know, my end date, my end game on on Charlemagne probably came earlier than before my name fell off this book or the book ended because jumping ahead and we can continue to talk about it. You know, this was an instance where you know, Jim had some very key people around him. You know, Deborah Purcell had worked with him a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, JJ, you know, had worked with him a long time. I had worked with JJ at Marvel. And, you know, but my time on this book came to an end, and I don't remember the exact specifics of what the comment was. But there was a plot point, or there was some feedback on some piece of scripting I had, I had put forward. And then there was a change, you know, that, that I don't remember exactly what it was, but I do remember it was, in my mind, totally innocuous. You know, it was it was just the sort of thing that you would, you know, hey, you know, wondering if we, you know, I went X and you're saying go Y and and I'm wondering, you know, why don't we go back to X maybe and here's my reason or maybe there's a, a letter in between the two. I don't know. You know, the kind of conversation I think you have, you, you know, even when you're servicing, you know, somebody else's needs or you're kind of being a shepherd for somebody else's storytelling, which is what this is in this instance. And mm-hmm. so I remember calling up Defiant and and I'm, I'm imagining it would have been Debbie, Deborah Purcell, and sort of saying, hey, you know, this over that, curious about this, what do you guys think? And um, you're off the book. Hmm. And it was just like, like the mere challenge of it, challenge of it, you know, big air quotes, uh, listeners, was just like I was suddenly, I don't know, all right. Not a team player, not part of the whole thing. Now yeah. we're we're egos and attitudes and personalities frayed or edgier because of all the other stuff that maybe was going on behind the scenes. I don't know. But I remember being wait, 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 what just happened? You, mm. you know, I'm yeah. not I'm not confronting it, you know. I'm not I'm not like being I'm not being defiant. Uh, although I think if you As are working were. for Defiant, you should be allowed to be Defiant, right? And so that was it. You know, it just sort of just ended 
almost as suddenly as it as it had begun. And so I didn't have, you know, a, a rack and frack and schnack and, you know, type of, you know, gritted teeth sort of thing to it. It was just, that was really weird. Mm. And it's just, and it's just gone. It was like a non-incident that was not incidental because obviously that means you're, you know, you don't have the book to work on anymore, but uh, it was just a, a very, very strange ending to it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't think that made my brain block it out, but it just certainly put a cold, hard ending to it in a very sudden way that I couldn't track. And because I can't remember the specifics, you know, even rereading the stuff, it doesn't like suddenly like spark in my mind what what it was, like what was the moment. But it was just yesterday, Dan. I know, it was just yesterday. No, it was was when, it was the sandwich. You know, I said he should get shawarma, and they said, no, it's got to be a sandwich. Got to be or, pastrami. Exactly. No, and I was like insistent it be a Reuben. But it almost feels like it was something like that ridiculous. You know, it was like yeah. kind of like the sort of thing that I never in a thousand years would have felt that it would have been a you know point of conflict. Yeah. I've had greater points of conflict and conflict, again, in big air quotes, you know, on this current daredevil thing, you know, where we've had actual discussions about lines or this or that, or that kind of thing, or Mm -hmm. more that I had back in the day, certainly. So, you know, the ending of it just kind of became a big nothing, if you will. And Mm -hmm. so that doesn't mean I didn't appreciate the opportunity or like working on the book. I did. It felt to me, it was very much Jim's book and it was the character, you know, you're saying like, you know, he's this yoked, you know, type of dude. I mean, there's a lot of very beyonder, Jim mm. Shooter-ish elements to this. You know, Starbrand, yeah. you know, uh, the the running jokes were always the Beyonder was Jim, Starbrand was Jim, <laughs> you know, and, and probably in a lot of ways they were. And this was Jim, a big guy, you know, with a lot of power mm-hmm. and trying to set out and do good, being misunderstood, you know, being the one person who can fix things. I'm not putting that out there as Jim's wrong impression of himself, but there was a certain type of character that he would create in that mold. Mm. And Charlemagne, I think, fit that for Defiant. You know, he was that centralish character, at least my understanding and my approach to him, that in the mix of all the other characters and incidents and dark dominions and, and so forth, you know, he served that purpose. He was that Captain America ish beyonder ish more more powers to be discovered as time goes on you know sort of things which can be interesting but i think can also be a little messy and amorphous as a reader and as a writer mm. well how does he do that well because he has an undiscovered power you, you know it's just all of a sudden you can like you know pull a rabbit out of a hat yeah because you want him to do that so i don't know where it was headed and I probably imagine if I was really to kind of be able to reactivate like certain neurons, I'm pretty much feeling like even on that last issue, issue and a half, there may be, I, I, I didn't finish that run out like in that way. So my mm-hmm. name's probably on that book, but I think, you know, folks went back in and, and probably finished up some, gotcha. of, the script, some of the other. Oh, interesting. That's really, yeah. The final issues credits, I think credit shooter as also writing it or scripting it. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. were a couple of names other than yours. Right, right. So that would have been the turning point. 
And, and, you know, again, I don't sit around and like, you know, curse it or, or anything. Right. It just felt like a sort of a weird, cause it was just, oh, it was, I mean, how oh, can it you, dope. it gave us Captain America on a casual Friday. Yeah. It was just, exactly. yeah, exactly. You got the lineup. Exactly. That's a brilliant thing. Something you just casually think about every once in a while when you're having a pastrami sandwich. And I get exactly. that. Though. Right. Right. <laughs> have a pastrami sandwich after this, you know, now that we're talking, you're going to get me hungry. <laughs> so how much freedom did you actually have in terms of plotting things out? Well, I think I felt like up to that point, I did have a certain amount of freedom. You know, I, I think there were parameters. There certainly were parameters, but I, I remember feeling pretty good about it. Okay. Like I said, I had to get from A to B. Yeah. Or maybe A to B to C. And, you know, maybe there, there were probably like three or four steps along the way. And you had to insert this and you had to make sure that that happened. Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't so much as me conjuring up the whole thing, I don't feel. But I felt like I had flexibility in how to apply that. At least that's my sensory impression of it. But then the abruptness, again, of that of that reaction was, yeah. right. what, what, what? What's going on here? Is there anything you would change about this comic if you could? Getting back to that fact that I feel very much this was Jim Shooter's book. And once again, being very fine with that. That was the assignment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was the, you know, the pact and, and everything. Possibly, as you guys are describing it, we're sort of laughing about it. It seems a little convoluted for aspects <laughs> of the story. Little. <laughs> just a little. Just a wee bit. So if I could have had... I could have had influence beyond what I did, you know, to continue to tell Jim's story and then look at it with this lens of 30 years later, 25 years later, it it sounds like it could have used a good edit, you know, could have used Mm. a good streamlining. Right. But in the moment, you know, it felt like, all right, it's hitting the marks. It's checking the boxes they want to check. It's a big multi-universe thing. So name dropping Mm. and other characters I'm not defending that, but some imprints and some publishers like that stuff, right? They like stirring up. I mean, so it was much very much of the time. Too. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, you know, they were like, everybody was doing crossovers. Like all of the image books were like, I remember there was at the same time, there was an image book where they did. It was like different creators were drawn. They basically guested on an issue. So it was like. Jim Lee did an issue of the Savage Dragon and yeah, that was fun. For, let's mix yeah. it up. Right. Yeah. Right. But, yeah, yeah. but, right. but, but as you're describing it, it does, you know, it, it feels, yes, everybody was doing it and they were doing it for commercial reasons and they were doing it because universe is sold and they were doing it for that critical right. mass again yep. of, of trying to make stuff happen. That doesn't necessarily make it right that, right. or rather to do that right, I should say you still have to be able to, to have a steel spine that a reader can get through mm-hmm. without scratching your right. head and and sort of going around in all these, you know, twisty, turny, you know, timey-wimey loops um, yeah. of, of stuff, which sounds like there's a certain amount of charm here and like you guys are responding to it like, oh, that, that seems like that's interesting and cool and, and interesting. But yeah. at the same time, it's like, ah, oh, that's a little bit messy. <laughs> You know, yeah, Mess- you're that's right, how I described it. Because it's not like adding Spider-Man to a comic character. You know, it's not like having you know Dazzler and Spider-Man shows up. Because Spider-Man is such a well-established like social yeah. character. Yeah. Like he's there. You don't have to over-explain Spider-Man. He's just Spider-Man. But right. that's where it felt like me as as not a 
super familiar person with Defiant walking into this and going, who are all of these characters? Mm-hmm. And not, and, and quite honestly, not wanting to do the research. Like I knew that we were going to talk about it. So <laughs> right, no, but but it just, also left me scratching it, my head a little bit. Right. And I, I, I think you nailed it like right there in the sense of, of everything's an unknown quantity. Right. You know, right. there's nothing here that is what's my anchor point. And then, oh, I can introduce War Dancer because my anchor point is this. Everybody from the get go is brand new. Mm-hmm. Right. It's too much. It's just and yet, and yet they're all coming into it as if I feel like I should know this universe. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So you have right. to have something kind of going on that is more uh, the reader point of entry. And it just sounds like there's way too much of that. Uh, because you know they're trying to, and again, I'm I'm putting myself in the in the best possible interpretation of this. You're ramping it all up to try to get to great as rapidly as possible, so you can right. get to that first multi issue mm-hmm. crossover event. But it's also, right. you know, if you if you hit it, you know it works. Yeah. If yeah. you don't, then it's just like I'm barely able to figure out how to keep up with it. Yeah. yeah. I mean. This is like, this has led into my last question about this, which is like, does anyone have any final thoughts? And I am Mm -hmm. like, everything that you said ties into my notes about the series Mm -hmm. is that like, I'm basically, I was describing it as messy was the big thing in my notes. I said it felt messy because of all the crossovers and cameos, which, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. it's a bit frustrating because like we just said, you know, I felt like I needed to read every other book from Defiant to fully understand what was going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that said, like, while there are some parts that feel a little bit problematic when we view it from 30 years later, primarily with issues regarding consent, I do wish we had gotten to see where Shooter had wanted this to go. But I feel mm-hmm. like what, what I loved about Terror Inc. was that, like, there were crossovers and everything, but it was, again, with characters that we all knew because they were kind of iconic Marvel characters. But that was mm-hmm. a series that was allowed to kind of breathe a little bit and just give us a series of kind of one-off little adventures that were really interesting and, mm-hmm. and let us get to know the character better before he got thrown into all these other conflicts. And we mm-hmm. didn't quite get that with Charlemagne. It was just, you know, it was bam, cameo, bam, fight with another hero, bam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so I wish we had gotten to see more of this and see where it was headed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting premise and it really kept me guessing. I wasn't really sure where the storyline was going to go at any given moment, obviously, based on this. And I was always being kept on the edge of my seat like that. And Dan, I got to say, I really did like the one-line zingers that I've come to expect from you. (laughs) Good. At least there's something I've contributed. (laughs) And I like the mashup of reality, fantasy, and like multiverses. That was mm-hmm. a really interesting combination, yeah. you know, right. everything right. aside, I did see what they were trying to do with the multiverses thing and having the different characters and the sub right. spectrum and, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, but you know, I, you're saying it re- really kept me guessing, or I was really confused, really kept me guessing could be euphemism <laughs> for that. And, and, you know, the, the real world well, and the, why not both? Why choose? You know, the real world and the fantasy, you know, can also be another artifact of things I think Jim Shooter was interested in. You know, the new universe for its flaws and, you know, and, and, you know, people who who will tear it down. 
you know, that original premise was supposed to be the world outside your window, right? That was supposed right. to be much more reality based with these superhero, supernatural, you know, elements rolled into that. So maybe there was an aspect of that that was trying to come through. I can see that in this defiant universe. I don't know. We can't recall ever really talking him about that, but that could have been an aspect that would have been played out. Again, the guys, you know, the guys have been a very good storyteller for a long, long time. And I haven't read any of his newer stuff that he's going on, but I would imagine it would still be very good storytelling. So, mm. but I think there's a lot of challenges to being a publisher to starting from zero you know, dealing with investors and all the other elements that kind of go into this and, you know, the intention of having a very singular vision and that then also sharing it out with people like me. Like I'm, again, I'm flattered and considered it a privilege that he asked me to, to, you know, take his character for a run. And for the time I was able to do it, I enjoyed it. But again, for the life of me, I, I wish I just could remember what it was. Cause I know it was like something so friggin' innocuous, just, just, <laughs> Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I was like, you know, maybe I went in like demanding all sorts of weird stuff. And, you know, they, they shot me down. <laughs> we need to bring Pinhead in. Maybe you're the villain here. Maybe I'm the villain. Exactly. Yes, exactly. That could very well be it. You know, then you suddenly realize, wait a minute. You look in the mirror. It's like one of those movies. It's like you suddenly realize you're the killer. It's the Twilight Zone episode. Oh my gosh. Yes, yes. You suddenly are twirling a mustache you didn't realize. Right, right, right. It's like, you know, How you've got that. happen? You, You've got that out, outer body version of yourself who's talking to you like in a Stephen King novel, and he's like, you know, no, I am your secret self. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well, the reason that we have been talking about Charlemagne is because it's from the same era that various major superheroes were getting '90s extreme rebrands with a capital X. Mm -hmm. Batman's identity was taken over by Azrael and he had a ridiculous set of armor during his run. Superman died and came back with a mullet. Spider-Man's clone saga. Do we talk about that in Polite Company? I'm not sure if we're allowed to. <laughs> I um, like how we almost just lost Dan there for a second when you said about the <laughs> mullet. <laughs> I'm, I'm out. You know, it's like, you know, having had a mullet during that era, you know, oh, I'm not one to speak. <laughs> So, um, oh, coming you're back, just man. feeling called out. Understood. <laughs> I see every day that I pick up my stepson from school, I see so many kids rocking mullets now. And I'm like, oh, God, oh, it's back. Yeah, right. there are a bunch. Yes, correct. Yeah. But for better or worse, the man bun is the modern day mullet. I'm sorry. I just that's <laughs> my, my feeling. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so. Along with all these other rebrands, Daredevil, under Dan's plotting, got a new costume during the Fall from Grace storyline. But Dan, you have a new miniseries from Marvel coming out right around the same time that this episode is dropping. I think this episode might drop a week later, like after it comes out. Okay. It is called, appropriately, Daredevil Black Armor. It mm -hmm. has you writing it with artists Netho Diaz and J.P. Mayer working on it. Mark Bagley, who is like one of my favorite artists of all time, I believe is doing the main cover, right? He is doing all four main covers, yes. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. So uh, what can you tell us about this book? Like, how did the whole thing come to be? Well, props. I, I love how you tag Azrael's armor as ridiculous, but you, huh? you nicely go in with like, you know, oh, but Daredevil got a new costume, you know, so so 
props on the diplomacy there. Matt um, didn't have the, that stupid visor. I don't get me wrong. I love Asbats. Asbats is delightful. <laughs> I I bought when Mark Wade's Batman Superman series came out. I made a point of buying two copies of the Cyborg Superman and Asbats cover. Like mm-hmm. I need it noted that I have a deep and abiding love for this, but it's also ridiculous. So there but you go. But also, we're a little biased now because you're a friend of the show. So, <laughs> so, so no, uh, yes. So you become skewed, you know. Whereas, you know, if I wasn't on the show, you said, you know, Terrible got a ridiculous set of armor in the '90s. And 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 let's be fair, like you know, as I said to the editorial team at Marvel, they weren't around when I got such shit for that costume back in the day. Yeah, yeah, which was considerable. <laughs> you know, this came about as a consequence of going back to conventions after a long time. You know, I'd been to conventions in 20 odd years, you know, decided to go to this local one in Connecticut back just after COVID sort of opened up again. I was invited to go to this convention called Terrificon run by a great guy named Mitch Halleck and a Oh, nice. A, a art dealer I know, Spencer Beck, who shows there often and I've known for many years, you know, said, you should come. They were probably looking for bodies who didn't mind if they got infected, you know. <laughs> And it was this sort of thing where, you know, my mindset was like, why am I going? I don't really, I have nothing to show. I have nothing to talk about. And I remember being about halfway there and almost turning around, like sort of feeling this is just ridiculous. My imposter syndrome was, you know, heavy Mm. on overdrive. But I got there and had a great time. You know, it was a fun time. As I said, we were reopening up from COVID. People were still a little bit standoffish, but it was nice to see people and people seeing me and going through the you're still alive, you know, mode of things, which was interesting. (laughs) But also I was recognizing that I could interact with people at a level where I I had nothing to carry. You know, I know the the fact of having nothing, but I also had no expectations of myself in the sense of I didn't have anything to prove, right? I could just enjoy the fact that somebody enjoyed Terror Incorporated or Night Stalkers Mm. or Daredevil and that for some reason meeting me or talking to me about it was meaningful to them. Great. Terrific. We're both having a good time here. So I went back the next year and now things were opened up more. And so this wasn't this last summer that we just passed through. This was the summer before. And amongst the people coming up to me, this nice guy comes up and he starts chatting me up. So DG, you know, it's nice to meet you. And you know, it's going to be good when they call me DG. And then he's like, um, uh, really liked your work. And, um, uh, I'm CB Sobolski and my brain is slow. So, you know, oh, it, it wow. takes me about, it's like a 30 second drop before I'm like, CB Sobolski, why does that sound? Oh, editor in chief of Marvel Comics. <laughs> 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 exactly. So, so I, I clue into that and, you know, I thank it for coming by. And then in my self deprecating, you know, joking way, I said, CB, you know, is I've been meaning to call you about those pitches, you know, that I was going to send you (laughs) and totally joking. And he goes, uh, well, as a matter of fact, and segues that into his scheme, his plot for coming by was they had been having some success with what they were calling these nostalgia series where they had gotten Peter David to come back and do some stuff and Mark Mm -hmm. Mattis to come back and do some stuff. And Howard Mackey just recently did a ghostwriter book, but he said, would you ever be interested in coming back and doing something, you know, for us, undefined at that point. And, you know, I was like, well, you know, I'm not an idiot, you know, uh, but I, (laughs) this isn't all I'm going to do now, which again is good, right? I don't have to carry everything on my shoulders 
and worry that this is the only thing that has to define me. So I said, absolutely, I'd be interested in talking to you about something. And he kindly gave me two email addresses, his Marvel email and his personal email address. So I remember just being really curious, like, what is this? And I, I called my son or texted my son on the way out and said, well, I don't know what's going on here, but that, you know, maybe I'm back in the hell's kitchen business. I don't know. But I didn't hear back from him for a couple of weeks because he was on the road. You know, mm-hmm. I did reach out to him, said, hey, it was great meeting you, blah, blah, blah. And and then he said, I've been on the road. Sorry to get back to you right away. I've been in touch with Devin Lewis, the Daredevil editor. I want you guys to talk. You know, we, we, we have an idea. You know, I figured of the many things I could possibly pitch in this, it, it had to be Daredevil they were thinking about. They're not going right. to suddenly come at me with terror ink out of the right the gate. We'll get to that eventually. But then when I called Devin, and then the first thing he said was, yes, we want you to do something with the armor. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I just broke out <laughs> laughing. I mean, I, 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 I thought that was hysterical. And I just, I said, of all the things, you know, you guys could possibly have put in front of me, that was literally the last thing I expected, just simply because the amount of crap that, I had taken, Scott McDaniel had taken, what are you guys doing? Daredevil doesn't need armor. Marvel at the time had been so quick to dismiss the costume after I was fired off the book. You know, they actually spent an entire 22-page issue with Warren Ellis, I think, literally ripping it up and tearing it apart and cutting it up with scissors (laughs) with a bunch of British Unproblematic creator Warren Ellis. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, the, the beauty of taking biomimetic based armor and cutting it up with scissors, we don't get into the logic around that. But <laughs> anyway, so it was it was not what I expected to hear. But, you know, I've got 20 odd years of working in a challenging advertising industry. So I'm used to kind of almost anything like throw me a challenge and, you know, challenge accepted. And, you know, it was a nice conversation. It was a really fun conversation. And the preliminary thing was like, well, if if you do it, take it into a different place. Put them up against some different villains, you know, Mm. have some fun with it. Try out some things you hadn't tried before. And so I was excited by that. I was excited by that invitation to kind of play it out. But then I got a little bit weirded out as well, because I said, well, if you go back to this, right, if you go back to this point in time, which it was such a singular point in time that I had constructed this subworld, mm-hmm. right? The subworld was Matt Murdock had faked his death. He had assumed this persona of Jack Batlin. And then Marvel quickly dismissed that after they got rid of me. I love so, that name, by the way, Jack Batlin. Well, of course. It's like, yeah, it's like two by Dan's, Dan's <laughs> school of two by fours, right? Battling Jack Murdock, you know, becomes Jack Batlin. But, um, but so suddenly, or everything that I was going to play out in the next year and a half of comics, I'm still stuck in. I don't want to go back in time and tell the story about Jack Batlin. Like mm. I want to tell a story about Matt Murdock. And most readers, I think, probably don't want to hear a story about Jack Batlin. They want to hear a story about Matt Murdock. But by the same token, this sub-universe exists. This is where the armor exists. It only exists in this world because Marvel consciously destroyed it. Mm. <laughs> And didn't have like a back closet of like, you know what? Why don't we just keep it like in the in the Daredevil cave or something in case we ever want to come back to it? So there's only one point in time. So I had to then start to look at this and say, um, 
wow, how do I do this where it doesn't become a convoluted mess that it takes you seven paragraphs, you know, to kind of explain what's going on and get into a story that's kind of interesting. And what's that story going to be about? You know, I said to Devin at one point, and I had about 15, 20 titles before they ended up on Daredevil Black Armor, but now it's Daredevil Black Armor. And I think it's the best title ever because sales is all behind it. I love it. You know, I said, is this story about the Black Armor? Or does the story just happen to feature the black armor, like in, in his mind? And his initial answer was, no, it just, it just kind of features the black armor. But interestingly enough, you can't really start to kind of get into these things, at least the way that I approach it, it, it without it becoming about it. So it ended up then becoming very much, what does it represent? And how do you make it mean something without it becoming, let me stop the story cold and tell you what it means. Mm. <laughs> so anyway, I'm rambling. Oh, Giving we love you like it. a little, little bit of the background there. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I can't wait for yeah. this. I have pre-ordered it. I have asked for them to get every variant cover they have. I'm stoked. And they got some pretty good, the Howard the Duck cover I'm not so <laughs> keen on, but the other ones look pretty, pretty awesome. All right. What was the one thing that excited you the most about returning to this era of Daredevil? And what's it like returning to him after all this time? I think that's an excellent question. And, and I think I was a little bit like afraid I'd be intimidated, you know, like because there's a lot of great Daredevil stuff that's going on since then. And this current run that's just ended with Chip Zdarsky and, and, and such is, you know, really strong storytelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I read a bunch of stuff, you know, just to kind of reacclimate myself to the world. And I was more excited by it than I was intimidated. Like, great. Yeah, this character is really cool. I remember that. But returning to this era of Daredevil, again, I wasn't intimidated once I sort of cracked the code on, well, Jesus, you wrote yourself into a friggin' corner. How do you manage this? But then I started to kind of recognize ways to manage that by addressing some aspects of what this black armor is and how Matt Murdock is the, the core to this story anyway, you know, and Fabian Nicieza had said to me when we went out to lunch at one point and we weren't discussed, you know, we just, this just happened to come up in, in passing. And he was, I guess, talking about some of the stuff he had done. Similarly, he's done some X-Men stuff or some cable. He's stuff. got a new one coming out too. I yeah, think. I think so. Yeah. He's working on some X-Men one right now. Yeah. Um, I will say his juggernaut series was fantastic. Well, like maybe a, that's what he was talking about initially. Yeah. But he said, just write it like you never stopped writing it. And it wasn't like I needed right. that advice, you know, or like that I was, I was being held back. But it was really good insight, you know, and it allowed me to slip into it. And I think it's been very interesting to return to it with a whole new skill set. I had moments then, okay? I, I think I had moments where I was really good and I had moments where I was really bad. And I'm a much, much, much better writer now than I ever was then, which has allowed me to kind of apply myself to this. And I sort of feel like, and I never expected this to happen, right? I wasn't sitting around waiting for the phone to ring or the email to ping, or if only I could do one more Daredevil story, right? If only, if only, if only. And I don't have any expectations to do another one. They would offer me something else. I would, of course, talk to them about it. But I'm feeling like this has been a little bit of a gift in the mm. sense that this is going to be a much more elegant finish, if indeed it is, than where I was last time, right? Which was sort of like dead, stop, mishmashed in the middle of a bunch of stuff. And I was 
put in a bad mental attitude. So I just feel like this whole thing has been a real refreshing ability for me to take it in a certain way, play out some things that I'm strong on, put myself in the, in the best of a 90s attitude, right? Where there's some fierce action, there's some one-liners. Netho is a totally different artist than Lee Weeks or Ron Garney or Scott mm -hmm. McDaniel, but totally appropriate to this and is doing just bang up work. So what an exciting chance to partner with somebody, you know, different who is excited about working on this. He's excited about the character. He liked the stuff I did. He likes this vibe that we're creating together. So all of those things have kind of gelled in this way to make this feel like really special and that it's got, you know, there's one-liners every panel. <laughs> love it. You know, not, not in a bad way, I hope. I love a one-liner. Yeah, it just feels like it really, you know, hits you know, hits the moments. And the experience, as I said, there have been some complications along the way. At one point, it was five issues. And then it had to become four. So mm. guess what? I'd written all five issues already. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so we had to retool that. That's not just like pulling a page or pulling a scene. You're repacing and you're replotting all your cliffhangers. You know, at one point, we had a very prominent character that another editorial office had agreed to let us use. And then that editorial office said, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't want to let you use that character anymore. Well, guess what? We had already plotted that all through. Oh, and so now how do you retool that? Who do you find that's, you know, a comparable thing that's not going to change all the motivations and all the lines and all the things that you've already written? But we, we figured it out. You know, we had a good dialogue and we, you know, we came to some places where now it feels very you know, seamless. So I'm liking the energy of it. I'm liking, you know, we're three, I mean, we're three issues are done. So Netho has just started the pencils on the, uh, I mean, he's into the pencils on the fourth one. So I'll be scripting that, you know, I'm sure I'll be finished with that before early December, I'm guessing, but that's, what's really fun about kind of coming back into it. Yeah. Okay. So the original fall from grace Mm -hmm. story feels like and i'm saying this with nothing but love but it feels like something that bill Hader's character stefan from saturday night live would have pitched <laughs> as a comic storyline like uh-huh this comic has everything it's got daredevil wearing black leather and metal knee pads psychics voodoo demons a psychic virus that can rewrite your dna every 90s <laughs> guest star that you would want including morbius and nick fury and venom and Electra gets resurrected <laughs> like I can just I can just picture Bill Hader on the weekend update desk pitching this. <laughs> but on a scale from one to fall from grace, how crazy is this series gonna be? And more importantly, I, do we get a cameo from the greatest Marvel character of all time, Terror Incorporated? Um, Bring him well, back. It, it is so true. I love that scale. I love the one one to fall from grace. Because I, mean, I, I always to phrase like one, one to fall from grace. You know, it's like spinal tap. It's like, well, ours goes to fall from grace. You know, like, <laughs> I'm going to Photoshop that now. <laughs> it's a great observation because, you know, as we were cooking up ideas and most of this, I would say 80% of this, 70% of this kind of came to me on one long afternoon. I mean, it okay. was like one of those suddenly like moments of like, well, what if I did this? And what if this happened? And what if this happened? And what we, and it was almost like I was able to sketch out a good 70% of it in a stream of consciousness, which then 
Devin and, and, and Tom, who's the associate editor, helped me improve upon. That's good, but bring it over here. That's good, but don't forget about this. You know, so yeah. good notes, as they say. But one of the things I realized <laughs> as I pitched them that initial thing was I said, if I really recognize Fall from Grace, Tree of Knowledge, which was the follow-up story, you know, after this, which which also featured the armor, is they're pretty bug fuck stories, if you'll excuse the expression. They're they are kind of crazy <laughs> in that in that way. They're just like there's all sorts of, you know, these has all these elements. Tree of Knowledge had, you know, Daredevil and Captain America at a rave debating, you know, digital rights before anybody knew what the hell that that was. Yes. You, you can't know, say yes. that to Jessica while she's taking a drink. She looked like she almost did a he, spit take. You know, it's like I was yeah, waiting. For I was moment. glad I was muted because I definitely made like an audible sound. <laughs> so I would say it's a good six, you know, seven. Okay. You know, there's some just some there's just some crazy stuff. And that made it better for me. I think there were points at writing Daredevil where, um, you know, I grounded things too much. And here I got to, I decided to play with some bigger elements in a non-confusing way, I hope. I mean, I think there's, like, this doesn't require any prior knowledge. It doesn't require Fall from Grace. It doesn't require anything. We cover off, I think, I mean, familiarity with the character, familiarity with the world. And being willing to embrace the crazy, as it were, is going to help with a comic like this, I think, more than other things. But, you know, I've tried to be very conscious about making sure the reader can kind of come into it and be up to speed and know who people are and what the motivations are and why, you know, why certain things are happening and identifying characters and not having to kind of, you know, go off on a Wikipedia hunt to understand, you know, what the hell is happening. Yeah. But yeah. but it's got it's got some good crazy in it. I love it. So yeah, so when the Black Armor debuted, it came with a couple of different versions of the same cover, including a glow in the dark version that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. I may own several of those. What is the coolest variant cover that you have seen for this so far? And more importantly, are we going to get any '90s gimmicks? The coolest one I've seen so far, and this takes away nothing, you know, from because there's some pretty extraordinary artists you know, working on stuff is actually, there's a full 3D rendered one. I can't remember the artist's last name. Raphael is his first name, but he's the, he's one of the concept artists for God of War, I believe. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so there's a, there's one of the variants, which looks like a fully realistic 3D rendered version of the costume. Like he's standing Mm. there in this, you know, totally textured, totally 3D costume, which I just love because it makes it look real. And what I'm hoping it's going to do is just inspire cosplayers to kind of get off their ass and say, if somebody can 3D print a, you know, an Iron Man suit, they can you know, 3D print these pieces and give themselves a challenge to you know, create a nice black armor cosplay. But it's a very striking one. But I don't think there's any... Beyond the variant visuals, mm-hmm. I, I've heard of no you know, gimmicks, you know, there's no scratch and sniff or smell what it's like, what it smell, what it's like to smell Matt Murdock, you know, or that kind of thing. So. Which for our readers who are too young to remember, that was a gimmick. They did that on the Ren and Stimpy comic from Marvel. Yes. 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 Yep. Yep. Oh man. Okay. Well, the other thing that I wanted to touch on quickly is that you just finished up a successful Kickstarter campaign. So can, can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Sure. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, it was a little bit down to the wire, but it did cross the threshold, as they say. So it's a supernatural grindhouse thriller about the truckers from hell, because these are the sort of things that you kick up with in your head. So the concept behind it is called Axel's Infernal. And the idea behind it is that there are many hells across time and space and cultures, not just a single Dante's Inferno, although that's one of them. But each of these hells needs a belief system in order to propagate its itself, in order to continue. Mm. And so there is literally a damnation delivery service run by the Underworld <laughs> Transportation Authority that enlists, and by that I mean press gangs or seduces or, you know, creates Faustian deals with various drivers to deliver these hells onto Earth. And so a woman named Percy Cross, who's a bit morally questionable, but, you know, has a chance to redeem or get more damned, is our heroine. And so the story is told entirely through her point of view, through her eyes, which is a little bit of a challenge. Talk about writing yourself into a corner sometimes. (laughs) But she gets enlisted into this. So this Kickstarter was the first issue of the first five-part storyline. So we, we did cross that threshold. So there were the usual variant covers and Carl Waller is my partner on this. He's got a very dynamic black and white style. Wes Wong is a colorist that's worked on it with a very painterly look. Pat Brousseau, who's an Eisner nominated letterer, a very successful you know guy over the years. So we brought in a lot of really good professional, great talent to make sure that this whole thing would kind of come together in a good way, which it has. So we're now into the, oh, shit, it got funded. Now I have to go through the whole <laughs> fulfillment end of it. So <laughs> that's, that's the moment now of, that's, oh no. Yeah, now exactly. You, know, you get what you wish for and then you got to like realize it. So yeah, it's been a learning experience. And if people miss the pledge drive, A, what, what's wrong with you? Why weren't you there to you know reduce my anxiety along the way? But we need to get through this you know, over the next couple of months, month and a half or so. Once I do that, I would say, keep an eye on me on social media, DG Chichester on Instagram or Twitter. Sorry, I refuse to call it X. I mean, join the club. And there will either be places where if I'm at a show, I'll probably have some copies. Certainly Carl will have some copies. We are looking to maybe doing a subsequent Indiegogo version of it because we didn't have international shipping and there was a lot of interest from folks overseas or in Canada or anywhere else that we might open that up again, but you'd still be able to get it if you were, you know, local as well. And then since this worked out well, we're going to do the next issue and and it's not going to be eight months later. It's probably going to be, you know, a couple, three months down the line. So again, if you keep your eye on where I'm at, that next one will also have an opportunity to get this first issue as part of a subsequent package. Great. All right. So is everyone ready to move on to brain wrinkles and wrap things up? Excellent. Let's do it. All right. We are now at brain wrinkles, which is that part of the show where we talk about one thing that has been stuck in our head that is comics or comics adjacent. Jessica or Dan, who wants to go first? I'm going to let first. Jessica go first. Oh, you're going to put oh. it on me again? No, I was going to put it on you. <laughs> but if you okay, if... that's fine. I'll take one for the okay. team. Okay. I've already got something written out, so it's probably a little bit less detrimental for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I've been thinking about adaptations, and I recently talked about watching Bodies, which is a show on Netflix mm. that was adapted from a DC graphic novel. Mm -hmm. And I also started watching Fall of the House of Usher, and I'm a big Poe fan, and that show adapts a lot of Poe short stories within mm -hmm. one series, the larger narrative. But it's also making me think about our contemporary writers, and it sometimes feels like we're just seeing the same old tired storylines being rewritten and recreated and re just pumped back out. When I know that there are so many talented and creative people able to make completely new stories for us. And mm -hmm. I know that the familiar cells and capitalism rules all at this point in time, but I wish that artists had more of an ability to flourish and be seen in ways that would accurately represent their talent to mainstream audiences. So mm -hmm. I don't have a good fix for that. It's just something I've been thinking about recently. Mm-hmm. Well, those are interesting. I've, I started watching Usher as well. So I'm about, I don't know, a third of the way. I have not. And, but um, I'm only one episode and I only have yeah. access to Netflix occasionally. That's the same <laughs> team who did like the Haunting of Hill House, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mike Flanagan. Correct. Yeah. I, yeah. I think so. It's got that same style. Yeah, it and does. That, uh, which is good. I like most of the Haunting of Hill House. So I'm, yeah. I'm liking where this is, you know, going as well. Well, like kind of related to what Jessica was saying, I've been thinking about superhero narratives in general. My stepson and I just finished watching Loki season two last night. And mm -hmm. while I you know, really enjoyed that series overall with a couple of caveats, Sarah said something that's really resonating with me. And she pointed out that superhero narratives are almost always reliant on the lone male hero making a noble sacrifice so that he can save the day. And how right. if we were getting stories catering more to a female audience that were probably created by a female creative team, they would probably focus more on a group of people working together communally to solve a mm -hmm. problem that doesn't require that kind of sacrifice. Like you'd have the community rising up to solve the problem for everyone, as opposed to one man alone being the person who solves everyone's problem. And right. I mean, we are starting to get more comics like that. Like see our recent episode focusing on which for hire. But I don't feel like we're really seeing that in movies or television yet. And I mean, who knows? It might be coming down the line, but it's just something that I have been thinking about. I'm going to build on that. You've wrinkled my brain, you, okay. you know, in the in the right way. But I think there's something about community storytelling. And I don't mean community, you know, community of people telling a story, mm -hmm. but stories that involve that power of community, you know, people doing something together in a bigger way for a bigger purpose is much more challenging, right? Mm -hmm. It's easier to sort of like have the solo character, male or female, you know, who just sort of achieves. But I mean, one of my favorite uh, programs of the last, you know, few years was The Expanse, right? Mm. Which, you know, once you crack the nut on those first three overpacked episodes, which took me probably three watches to kind of make my way through it. I it think it took me a couple of times to get into it too. But it became, I mean, I could not get enough of that, you know, sense of world that they built. When you've got characters who are coming together from distinct, disenfranchised places and then making new alliances and realliances, and you've got that also wrapper of not quite hard science fiction, mm. but something that is also like that one step 
maybe like maybe that's really able to happen it's not just total mm -hmm. fantasy not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that but i think there's something that you can insert yourself into as a viewer and a participant reader you know for all mankind is a lot like that as well the apple you know show about the great the show. alternate version of the space program which again for the same reasons i love because it takes us to this imaginative place and it's while it's had some central characters they're not necessarily just that single hero it's not just that one astronaut that does it all mm. it sort of shifts places with it it reminds me a lot now that we're wrinkling our brains of cooperative games you know like uh, pandemic or the forbidden jungle series if you guys are familiar with those at all where you I don't know if you guys are board gamers, but mm -hmm. you know there's this whole set of games that are not just winner takes all, but we all play a different role in the game, and we all have a specialty, and we mm -hmm. all have a role to play, and we have to kind of get to uh, the game is playing against us versus right. so know, like betrayal and, at House on the Hill would be a yeah good yeah 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 right you know but but I think there's there's a really interesting place for that type of storytelling that takes more work mm -hmm. but i think can be very enjoyable and and not more challenging to like oh i don't know how to get into this as an audience but can be really exciting and maybe breaks us away from that that rote system that's great well yeah. dan like as always thank you so much for coming on we always love having you here it's always a great conversation thank so, you guys yeah I at some point we'll it. have to get you like you know it's like the the snl like five-time hosting jacket for the members exactly the yes right. exactly <laughs> there needs right, to be right. something in the meantime cool, we'll cool. send you some more stickers because we've got some more i i don't think we've Perfect. sent you any with piles our mascot the, the dollar no video. i don't yeah. think so okay. no no drop them drop them my way we have uh, we have 90s hologram stickers like right. platinum oh, edition. Also, I, I have like i i think you know i have my my Kickstarter. Oh, nice. Oh, cool. So, yeah, we've got a cool. whole P.O. box now these days. Like, so Glittery things. So, yeah, yeah it's well, awesome. Yeah, you were you were very kind earlier this year and sent us uh, some terror buttons and <laughs> <Yeah>. stickers. <laughs> love. Yeah, they are. Thank you so much. They are of currently course. sitting on my file cabinets that I used to house my comic collection. But uh, yeah, so next week we will have another Dollar Bin Discovery. After that, we will be back with something else. Who knows? We haven't plotted that far ahead. But until then, stay safe out there and we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to 10 Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or now. The official podcast account is Tencent Takes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K, and Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Blue Sky, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. You can also send us mail now. We are at P.O. Box 940 in Pengrove, California, 
94951, and Pengrove is spelled P-E-N-N-G-R-O-V-E. Send us stuff. (laughs) If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Folks can uh, follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram at uh, DG Chichester. And there's a newsletter, which I've been very bad about, but uh, check it out because I'll get better at it, which is storymaze.substack.com. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.